All right, well, good evening, everybody. Good to see you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the epistle of James chapter 1? James 1. And as we said when we first started this study a few weeks ago, James is calling his readers to maturity and commitment. That's why the first thing he tackles is the issue of accepting trials with joy. Because he knows that trials can grow their faith, his readers can grow their faith and produce within them and all of us the character of Christ. And he follows that by immediately encouraging them to resist temptation, which he knows the devil is going to try to use against them every chance he gets. So God uses trials to lift us up. Satan uses temptations to bring us down. Mature believers embrace the former and resist the latter, but Carnal Christians resist trials and give in to temptation on a regular basis. This is what he's trying to correct. This is what he's trying to reverse. He's trying to address some of the carnality in his readers' lives so he can elevate them to a deeper walk with the Lord, a walk of commitment and faith where they are walking in maturity instead of carnality. Now, last week we got as far as verse 15, but let's back up to verse 12 for a minute. Where James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, if we take the last word of verse 15, death, and couple it with verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, it sounds like James could be parroting what Paul said in his epistles to the Galatians and to the Romans. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And he goes on to talk about if you make it a pattern of your life to sow to the flesh, you're going to reap hell someday, judgment. But if the pattern of your life is to sow to the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be obedient to what God has said, then you will reap everlasting life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And the idea is eternal death in the lake of fire or hell. So that could very well be what James is saying. However, it could be that verses 16 and 17 are a continuation of the thought that he introduced in verse 13. Let me read it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, if this is his line of thought, then, as we talked about last week briefly, James is warning his readers not to blame God for the temptations that they face. Because temptation is of the devil and is evil at its core, and God is holy and is absolutely pure from any evil. Therefore, temptation never comes from God. It can't tempt him. God is uh, immune to any temptation, nor does he tempt anyone, James says. See, He's trying to elevate their thinking. It's so easy for us to blame God, right? To blame everybody else for our sin. 
but the height of that would be to blame God, okay? I've actually heard people blame God for their sin. Well, you know, I drink, but God could take it away from me. It's his fault, really. I mean, you know. The idea is, though, that James is trying to encourage these folks to grow up. And part of growing up means you take responsibility for the sins you commit. You don't try to blame others and pass blame uh, you know, off onto others. And you especially don't do that with God. He is telling them, look, you know, I want you guys to walk in the Spirit. And I want you to realize that the temptations that you're going through, they're not from God. They're from the devil. He's trying to bring you down. God brings trials to lift you up, but not temptations. Temptations are from the devil. Understand that. And uh, he just wants us to take responsibility, his readers and all of us, uh, for our sins. Now, again, maturity in the Christian life doesn't seek to pass blame on anyone else. And uh, Paul expressed this maturity, the maturity of a spirit-filled believer, to the Corinthians. Because he was trying to get them to grow up too. They're a very carnal church, okay? And Paul, when he was with them, conducted himself in such a way that he was an example of true maturity, uh, of a spirit-filled life. And he, he brings that to the remembrance in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, we, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all of our dealings. This is the pattern of our lives. Uh, we, we always conduct ourselves in godly sincerity and holiness, we have depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. So Paul is saying, look, I wanted to be an example to you guys of what it means to be a spirit-filled believer. And uh, it means that you rely on God's strength moment by moment, day by day. Uh, you live in such a way that holiness is the main uh, thing that you're pursuing, which allows you then to have a good conscience. Nobody, People might speak evil of you. Even if you do what's right, but know this, Peter said, at least you have the clear conscience of knowing it's a lie when people speak evil of you. Make sure it's, it's false because you're living for the Lord. So God only has good in mind for us guys and only gives good gifts to us. Verse 17, as James goes on, every good, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, by saying this, James is getting into a, a statement about God's character, that he is perfectly good, absolutely holy, and therefore cannot do anything that is evil and never gives anything evil to anyone else like temptation and so on. Now, in this context, the main thought that James, as we have looked at this, in the context of the main thought James is expressing, listen, for the mature Christian, all that matters is eternity. All that matters is eternity. It is our perspective of life. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 6, that Jesus Christ, because we're in him, has seated us in heavenly places. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, Solomon said he's put eternity in our hearts. This is the perspective that we live with as spirit-filled, mature Christians. And as such, our whole goal in life is to, be, is to endure whatever it takes to become more and more like Jesus. Why? Because we want to honor God now, but we want to have an eternity that is as glorious as possible. And that's the idea of living for the Lord right now 
and uh, submitting to the work of the Spirit who is conforming us into the image of Jesus day by day. And that's really what our goal is as Spirit-filled believers. And guys, it is in this context that James talks about the good gifts God gives to us, which include, listen, trials, as he said in verses 2 and 3. You know, you read that and you go, count it all joy, and you fall into various trials. It's a little hard to do, Lord. Well, not if you understand his theme, not if you understand where he's coming from. The whole idea is he wants you and all of us to grow up, be mature, walk in the Spirit, and understand that this life is just a time when we're here to glorify God. It's not a time to build up for ourselves or lay up treasures uh, on the earth. It's not a time to enjoy all the uh, uh, opportunities to indulge our flesh and earthly pleasures and so on. Mature believers in Christ understand this life is so short, and God has given us a limited amount of time to use our lives for his glory that we might grow in Christ's trials. We welcome them because if they're going to grow us more and, 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 and conform us into the image of our Savior, that we can have the best eternity possible, then we embrace those things. Because, guys, listen, and we've talked about this. God is always working for our eternal best, not our temporal comfort. If you're a carnally-minded Christian, it's reversed. Uh, carnal Christians tend to think that God is always working for or should always work towards their earthly comfort. And that when trials come, either God is A, let him down, or the devil's attacking, so I better rebuke him. They don't understand. I think it's because they don't want to understand. They don't understand that trials come to us from the hand of God to grow us. That's why James says, count it all joy. And Paul says in the book of Romans, you know what? They produce in us character and hope and perseverance. These are all qualities that will not be produced in us without trials. That's why God allows them, because he wants us to have the most glorious eternity possible, all the rewards that we can possibly get by being faithful right now in this life and enduring whatever God sends our way and so on. You know, if you're not looking at life through the eyes of the Spirit, through the Word of God, what seems good from a human standpoint might be the absolute worst thing that can happen to you. You know how many people thought Christians? Now, I've never played the lottery in my life, but there's a lot of Christians that do, and I'm not, I'm not putting you down, okay, if you do. Um, and maybe you're thinking, boy, we just if God let me win the lottery. might be better if God didn't let you win the lottery. So a lot of people who have won the lottery and destroyed their lives, destroyed their families. What they thought was going to be a real blessing turned out to be an absolute curse. But this is how, this is the problem. We often, you know, are looking at life through the eyes of flesh and not the eyes of faith. Now, the statement that these good and perfect gifts, and can I just interject, I think James could be saying these good and perfecting gifts, okay? He says, comes down from the Father of lights. Interesting term. From what I've been able to study, the phrase the Father of lights was an ancient Jewish title for God, referring to him as creator, the great giver of light in the form of the sun, moon, and stars. You can read about that, Genesis 1, verses 14 to 19. One scholar put it this way. He said, and I quote, Unlike those sources of light, though, in the heavenlies, which, magnificent as they are, 
can nevertheless vary and will eventually fade. God's character, power, wisdom, and love have no variation or shifting shadow. Through Malachi, the Lord declares, I, the Lord, do not change. Through John, we are told in the Gospel of John, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In um, the book of Hebrews, we read that we are, we are assured that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I, the idea is that you know, there's no variation with God. There's no, uh, you know, sometimes the, the heavenly bodies, they, uh, they turn a certain way, and they're, and they're bright, and then they dim. God is not like that. God is consistent in his character. He never changes because he's God, right? And uh, that's why verse 18, James says, of his own will, or I should say this, he goes on to say in verse 18, of his own will, God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. I want to see the um, correlation. After James talks about God being the source of the original creation, verses 17 and 18, he then talks about how he spoke another creation into existence, his new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she, of course, is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Galatians 6, 15, Paul said, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but listen. But a new creation doesn't matter. These religious rituals are meaningless. What really matters is a new, that you're a new creation. I'll have you turn to this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, he's going somewhere with this idea, so hang in there. But let me read to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Because Paul really is getting into something that I think James is kind of um, amplifying or talking about himself. Paul said... Therefore, since we have this ministry, now he's talking about the Great Commission, going out into all the world and sharing the gospel that people get saved. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of of God. So again, Paul is talking about being a witness, being a light. He is living uh, a kind of life that brings glory to God. Verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Listen to verse 6. For it is the God, okay, the God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying, well, look, we have a part and we are faithful to doing our part. We're going out there, we're sharing the good news, we're not compromising, and we're backing it up with a holy life. Because there's nothing more awesome in the hands of a holy God than a holy instrument, right? We're only called to bring Christ to men, not to bring men to Christ. Only God can do that. 
But he has commissioned us to go out into all the world and to speak the good news faithfully, the gospel, and to do it with a holy life because we don't want people to look at us and go, well, you know, he or she, you know, they talk a good talk, but you know what? Their life is completely, you know, not being lived for the God they claim to serve. So Paul says, we're doing our part. We're giving the gospel. No, not everyone believes because the God of this world has blinded their minds lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine in their hearts. And then he actually takes a page from the original creation, how God said, let there be light, right? In, the, in Genesis 1, the first or second day, he said, let there be light. That was the first step of the creation, right? And then, of course, from that, he created everything else. And Paul takes a page from the original creation and says, God is all about now speaking a new creation into existence. He speaks light into people's hearts, those who are willing, those who want to know the truth. He speaks light into their hearts, and they are born again of the Spirit. They become a new creation, kind of like he did with the first creation, how he spoke everything into existence. That's how he created us uh, as new creations in Christ. James chapter 1, verse 18, again, he said, Of his own will, he brought us forth, listen, by the word of truth. The same word that created the original creation is the same word that creates now the new creation, the body of Christ. 1 Peter 1.23, Peter says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. But guys, even more to the point, James is saying that the purpose of the original creation, he's making now, the again, a correlation, he is saying that the purpose of the original creation was to bring God glory. You have to turn to these, but you know them. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens, or the creation, declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And the psalmist goes on to say, the creation speaks a universal language that every person on the face of the planet understands. Because you can't have a creation without a creator. I, I know that there are people that... Uh, would vehemently deny, uh, you know, disagree with me on that point. But some things are self-evident. God never defended his existence in the, the Bible anywhere, especially in the book of Genesis. Because he made us intelligent enough to realize you cannot have a creation without a creator. So he never tries to defend himself. Some truths are just self-evident. But he said the, the creation declares God's existence and his glory. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, uh, verse 20, Paul said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, listen, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made so that men are without excuse. You deny the existence of God, God says the creation will judge you on the day of judgment because I've given this world enough truth that I exist the creation bears witness to my existence. And if you reject me, well, I'll hold you accountable on the day of judgment. And so it is, guys, that what James is saying is that with regard to the new creation, is, is God created the, first, the original creation to bring him glory. Uh, James is kind of picking up on that and is saying, you know, with regard to the new creation, that he created us for his glory. Uh, that we are to live in such a way as to bring God glory by being, listen, lights, in this world with no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, we are to live lives that are consistent in holiness and goodness. That's maturity. Consistency equals 
maturity, not lives that are light sometimes and darkness at other times. That is the very definition of immaturity. People who are up and down, you know, I mean, one minute they're walking in the spirit, the next they're in the world with their buddies hanging out and drinking and whatever they're doing, all right? They're in and out, okay? They're, they're close to God and then they're far away from God. They're up and down, in and out, that kind of thing. That is the very definition of immaturity. And James went on to say at the end of verse 18 that we, the new creation, might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Or more precisely, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his new creation. Now listen, James was Jew, a Jew, and the Jews understood the importance of the first fruits of the harvest. In fact, God instituted an official feast to commemorate the importance of it. He called it the Feast of First Fruits. Now, you remember that in the spring of the year, uh, there were three feasts that took place in the month of Nisan. Corresponds to our March April. First of all, you had Passover. Right after it, for the next week, you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during that week, there was a Sunday, and that became the Feast of First Fruits. And the idea was, of course, this Feast of First Fruits was uh, commemorated in the spring of the year, as I said, uh, late March, early April. The time of the year when the first stalks or first fruits of the barley harvest would begin to come up out of the ground. Now, barley was a winter crop planted in the winter. Uh, the first shoots uh, appeared in the early spring, and it was harvested in the summer. So the Feast of First Fruits was when the, the first shoots or the first stalks of the barley harvest began to poke their way up out of the ground. The Jews on this feast day were supposed to cut those shoots down and take them to the tabernacle, later the temple, and they would be given to God as a wave offering. A wave offering was a thanksgiving offering. They were acknowledging that God was first, that God had blessed them with uh, you know, all these provisions. Every year he would give them all they needed to live. In fact, at the great fall harvest, the Feast of Ingathering, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, they would really celebrate this for a whole week. But here in the spring, God was showing them that, look, the first of the crops that poked away out of the ground, you cut them off, give them to me. I get the first, the best in your life, the first of your life, of everything. And as you honor me with the first fruits, I will then bless you with a great harvest at the time of the, you know, when everything is ripe and ready to be harvested. Uh, I will bless, in this case, the barley harvest in a very powerful way. But um, again, guys, the Feast of First Fruits was... Um, giving God the first, and then um, God would accept it, guaranteeing that a great harvest would come up, listen, out of the ground at the time of the great barley harvest. And I believe, guys, that this is in fact what James has in mind when he calls the church the first fruits of God's new creation. We will be the first ones to come up out of the ground. When is that going to happen? At the time of the rapture. We're going to be the ones who will be first to come up out of the ground before the great harvest of souls we're going to be will be resurrected down the road, okay? What, what do I mean? Well, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. The church is going to be raptured before the great tribulation begins. I believe. I'm pre-trip. Not everybody is. But I believe the rapture will take place before the Antichrist signs that peace treaty with Israel 
that Daniel talks about in Daniel 9 that will officially be in the last seven years, a time known as the time of Jacob's trouble, where Israel is going to be the focus and the Antichrist is going to be uh, pursuing and killing the Jewish people primarily during the seven-year period. I believe that before that period begins, the rapture will take place and we will come up out of the ground. That's what it's all about. Okay, we know as believers, when we die in Jesus Christ, our soul and spirit go immediately into the presence of the Lord. But our body is buried in the ground. It goes to sleep, quote unquote. Why does the Bible call it sleep? Because it's going to be awoken at one point. It's not going to be permanent. All right. So the Bible likens the death of a, of a believer uh, differently than the death of an unbeliever. We are going to be resurrected to a new life at one point. For the Christian, the person who is saved from Pentecost to the rapture, that's the church age, anyone saved during that time, when the rapture happens, they will be resurrected and reunited with their soul and spirit, which are with the Lord now. And we will then have a glorified body and so on. Now, it's interesting what Paul said in his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15. And uh, I will just read this one verse, and then I'll summarize. If you want to get into this in detail, uh, go online and get our study from 1 Corinthians 15, starting at about around verse 20. Because uh, we went into this resurrection in a lot of detail. But we talk about the church being the first fruits of a great resurrection that's coming. Well, technically, Jesus Christ is called the first fruits. And in the light of what James said, that the church is the first fruits, too, Maybe Jesus was the first then of the first fruits, okay? But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul said, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Very important. Each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits after those who are Christ at his coming. We've talked about this. The Greek word translated order in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 is the word tagma, and it really means a succession, an order of succession. What is Paul saying? He is saying that Jesus Christ was the first person ever raised from the dead, listen, never to die again. I mean, you had others that were raised before Christ, like Lazarus and others, but they always died. All of them died again. Jesus Christ was the first fruits of a brand new order where those who have believed in him would be resurrected, never to die again. Remember what Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. My resurrection is going to guarantee a great harvest of souls. But this harvest of souls, this resurrection is not going to all happen at one time. There are those that believe in one great resurrection. I mean, just for everybody. But that's not what the Bible teaches, especially right here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that this is going to be a succession of resurrections. Jesus first. After Jesus will come the resurrection of the church saints. That will happen at the time of the rapture. Then you have the seven-year tribulation period, and Jesus will come back with his church. At that time, and we get into this in detail, so if you're interested, get into the study out of 1 Corinthians 15. But when Jesus comes back again, two other groups will be resurrected. The tribulation saints, because many are going to be killed for their faith during the tribulation period. You can read Revelation chapter 6 and 7 
I'm talking millions upon millions. Some say that all the saints, that the people that were saved from Pentecost to the rapture, won't even compare to how many get saved during the tribulation period. I don't know if that's true. I know that there, there is such an innumerable amount of people that are standing in heaven that have been killed by the Antichrist that the, the angel or one of the elders who is showing John this scene says to him, who are these people, John? And John says, sir, I don't know. You tell me. These are tribulation saints, those who came out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. I mean, they couldn't even be numbered. There were so many of them. So I believe that the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes back with his church to establish his kingdom, at that time he resurrects the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints. Read Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Those two groups will be resurrected at that time. Then you have the millennial kingdom, right? Because Christ comes back to establish a thousand-year kingdom. And the Bible says in um, Isaiah 65, around verse 20, that even though you have Christ on the throne, death will not be done away with completely. The child will die at 100. So if a person's 100 years old and they die during this millennial kingdom, they'll be considered a child. Most people will live, I assume, all the way through the thousand years. All right, But death will still be a reality. So at one point, those folks have to be resurrected too. When that happens, I'm not quite sure. Uh, maybe it's at the end of the millennial kingdom. I don't know. All right, But uh, they will be resurrected uh, at one point. And these are believers now. Not everybody who lives during the millennial kingdom is going to be a believer in Christ. There will be many people who are forced to um, bow the knee to Christ. He is the king on the throne over the whole earth. And they will be forced to pay him homage. They will be forced to obey his decrees. If anyone begins to rebel, Jesus will pop them with a rod uh, in his hand, a rod of iron, and they'll, they'll be just done away with. He won't tolerate injustice or crime or rebellion of any kind. So there are those folks who will be killed during the, the millennial kingdom that will go to hell. But many others will die for whatever reason, and they are saved. All right. Now we know that death is not cast into the death is not going to be done away with until it's cast into the lake of fire, and that's going to happen, of course, when the last resurrection is, takes place. This is a bad one. All those other ones, those were good. They're talking about believers now, right? There is one final resurrection for the unbeliever. You can read about this in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. And look especially at verse 20, around there. But God is going to, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5. God is going to, at one point, resurrect all the unbelievers that have ever lived. They have been in Hades since they have died, a place of incarceration, not hell, but a place of in, temporary place of incarceration, and at the great white throne judgment, they will be resurrected, stand before the Lord. And, uh, of course, in their minds, they're going to have their day in court. You know, well, I don't know why I'm in this horrible place. Had to be a mistake. When I stand before Jesus, I'll tell him what kind of a good person I was. Certainly he'll let me into heaven. No, that's not going to happen. They don't realize the case has been decided. It was actually decided in the Garden of Eden when man rebelled against God and God pronounced the curse. When Jesus came, he said, I didn't, haven't come to condemn the world. 
but that the world through me might be saved. He who who does not believe is what? Condemned already, because he has not believed in in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the world is already condemned. What is the great white throne judgment? It's the sentencing phase. Unbelievers are guilty. They don't get their day in court. Only, the only day in court they get is the one where Jesus, based on all the evil deeds they have done, determines their degree of punishment in hell, and they are cast into the lake of fire, hell, and along with them, death and Hades. Death will be no more after the millennial kingdom. We move into the eternal state. Probably told you a lot more about resurrections you want to learn tonight, but um, if you would like to know more, Go online and uh, get the study. But I just want you to understand that, you know, James is talking about this uh, new creation and uh, how that God is, uh, you know, he's creating new lives that will glorify him even. You know, the the original creation declares God's existence and that he's a powerful and very wise God. Because look at the beauty, the intricacy of all the ecosystems and how they fit together and it's just amazing right but as you look at the into the creation you can tell there must be uh, a very powerful being who made it all but you don't have any personal information about that god you don't know what he's like i mean he's powerful he likes variety but we don't know really anything about him personally beyond we don't know we don't know his name this is where we come in When God touches us, says, let there be light, and the light comes into our heart, we accept Christ, and we are born of the Spirit. We're a new creation now. We're the ones who give God voice. We're the ones who go out and declare his name. We are the ones who tell people what he's like, what he requires of us. We live for his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. God's church declares the glory of God because we live it, or are supposed to live it out in our lives. Now, The rest of this chapter gives practical instruction as to how we, as the first fruits of God's new creation, can properly represent and glorify him in this world. Verse 19, so then, my beloved brethren, see, now he's going to draw application. So then, all right, based on all I've just said, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Someone has said that God gave us one mouth and two ears because he wanted us to listen twice as much as he wanted us to speak. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I do know this, that as long as we're talking, we're not listening. As Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 10, verse 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. You know, um, one of the goals of my Christian life has been to stop talking so much. You know, I, I remember what David said, and I prayed this many times. David said, Lord, put a guard over the door of my lips. Because, you know, we just start talking, and all of a sudden we're gossiping and we're sitting, and we didn't even mean to do it, but here we are, you know? And I'll tell you what, the more you talk about somebody, the more fired up you get, the more angry. You know, as you remember the way they mistreated you, you know, or whatever it was, right? Or mistreated somebody else that you thought that they did something with a friend of yours or somebody, you know? And so it begins to build this anger, this wrath. 
Uh, one pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, we can learn to be slow to wrath by first learning to be swift to hear and slow to speak. Much of our anger and wrath comes from being self-centered and not others-centered. Swift to hear is a way to be others-centered. Slow to speak is also a way to be others-centered, end quote. You know, James said that losing our temper and shooting off our mouths, and believe me, he'll have a lot more to say about the tongue later on in his epistle. But he says, you know, losing our temper, shooting off our mouth, isn't showing this world what God is like. Or as he put it in verse 20, his righteousness is not produced. And if we're all about glorifying God, that means we represent him to this world in a way that the world, as it looks at us, can see God's character. Remember what Jesus said the night before the cross in John 17, he said, Father, I have glorified your name to the people of this world. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, earlier in the evening, he talked about the Father and how he was going back to the Father and that they couldn't follow him, his disciples, not at that time, but he would come back for them, right? And, uh, and he said, you know, I'm going to my Father and your Father and so on. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And um, uh, what was it? To Thomas blurts out, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. And Philip then blurted out, well, Lord, show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. What Jesus was saying in part, which, and then he goes on in chapter 17 to say, Father, I've glorified your name. How? I have lived in such a way as that when people looked at me, they saw you. Now, of course, nobody could do that like Jesus with the Father. But you know what? We should be at least attempting through the power of the Spirit to be the kind of people that the world can look at and know what our Father's like by the way we live. And James is saying, you know, if we're out there being carnal and getting angry over the dumbest things, shooting our mouths off, gossiping, we're not producing God's righteousness. The world cannot see what our Father's like. Author William MacDonald said, and I quote, a man who is quick-tempered does not produce the kind of righteousness which God expects from his children. And again, maturity is in view in James' epistle. Those who lose their temper give people a wrong impression about Christianity. It is still true that he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit, controls himself, his anger, is better or is a stronger man than he who takes a city. Proverbs 16, verse 32. James 1, verse 21, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Guys, when a heart is not purified through salvation and is not kept pure daily through ongoing sanctification, listen, the filth that is in it, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. If the word of God is not counteracting the poison, you remember the story of, I think it was Elisha, uh, he had a school of the prophets, and they had nothing to eat. And so he sent the guys out to uh, you know, gather whatever they could, vegetable, wild stuff, so they could make a big pot of stew or soup. And, you know, the guys were bringing back gourds and different things. They were chopping them up and sticking them into this pot. And somebody tasted it. They said, oh, there's death in the pot. It was some kind of a poisonous root or mushroom or something. That to eat this 
they would die. And so what did he do? He took meal, dumped it into the pot, mixed it up, and the poison was gone. Meal speaks of used to make bread. Bread is the word of God. If we don't counteract the poison in our own hearts by adding God's word and walking in the spirit every single day, then what's there? And his language is pretty pretty graphic, okay? Laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. It almost sounds to me like he's talking about a clogged septic tank that just starts overflowing with this filthy waste. Because what's in our hearts, believe me, we don't even want to know. In fact, again, Jeremiah 17, God says, only I know the heart. And believe me when I tell you, it ain't pretty. I know what's in your heart. The only way we can counteract whatever is down in there is to keep feeding ourselves in the Word of God, walking in the Spirit. And as we spend time in God's presence, He has a way of revealing what's in there so we can confess it and repent of it. But He has a way of of purifying, right? Um, What's in our our hearts. You know, and if we don't deal with it, it it overflows, like I said, and... um, What's overflowing is the filthiness of our fallen nature. We've got these two natures warring, Paul said. Um, the flesh is warring against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. If we walk in the spirit, Paul said, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you don't walk in the spirit, if you're carnal, well, then that stuff is going to bubble up, and it's ugly, and it's, it's disgusting. It's defiling, okay? And again, the way to prevent this is what he said here in verse 21. He said it's to receive the implanted word, the word of God, into the heart, which alone, he says, can save us. Now, I thought he was talking about, I thought he was writing to save people. Yeah, right? But he's talking in general, too, all right? Let me just stop and say this. Our salvation is actually three-dimensional, and I'm sure you know this. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's salvation, Ephesians 2.8. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. And we will someday be saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification, Revelation 22, verse 15. So all these things are happening. I mean, when you accepted Christ, you were saved, past tense now, from hell. Okay? I mean, the penalty of sin. You are being saved as you walk in the Spirit from the flesh, the dominating, controlling you, right? And someday you won't have to deal with sin anymore. The flesh will be gone. Nothing defiling, it says, will be allowed to enter the new Jerusalem where we live. We'll have a new nature, new glorified body, and so on. So he's talking about (laughs) kind of very ugly stuff. Maybe a nicer illustration would be the one he kind of implies also here. You know, would be planting the word of God within your heart as you would a beautiful as you would beautiful flowers in your garden. All right, we talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago. But he talks about receiving the implanted word. I like that better. The garden metaphor is nicer than a septic tank, okay? Um, And God wants our lives to blossom and bring forth beauty. Before we can plant the word in our hearts, we have to do some cultivating. If it's going to grow, if it's going to take root and grow and produce something beautiful, fruits of the Spirit and all, well, we have some work to do before we do that. And one of them is, first of all, confessing our sins and asking God to forgive us. All right? Of course, that comes out of 1 John 1, 9. 
Then we kind of meditate as we confess our sins. We meditate on God's word, his grace, his love. And we ask him to kind of plow up any hardness in our hearts. As Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 4, verse 3, break up the fallow ground and sow not thorns there. Again, if there's hardness there, we have to ask God to break it up. Like when a farmer wants to plant things, he's got to take and cultivate the soil. Okay, he's got to prepare it, and uh, he's got to he's got to turn it over, take out the roots uh, of the of the weeds and rocks. Uh, he's got to cultivate that, and and he's got to do that before he can even plant the seed if it's going to grow and bear fruit. He's got to break up the hard ground, the fallow ground, before he can plant. And we got to you know bring our hearts before the Lord and say, Lord, where am I obstinate? Where am I hard-hearted? Where where am I resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in my life? You're sincere. He'll show you. You know what, guys? Usually we know already. We're just not wanting to face it. And finally, James does talk about here that we must have an attitude of meekness, which I think is kind of like a, like a fertilizer almost, that allows the Word of God to really take root and bear tremendous fruit in our lives. He talks about, you know, an attitude of meekness, verse 21. And guys, meekness is the opposite of the wrath the flesh produces, which he talks about in verses 19 and 20. All right, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I think it's a pretty powerful exhortation. The church is full of hearers of God's word. And many have deceived themselves into thinking that simply going to church and hearing the word of God makes them a Christian. James says that true saving faith not only hears God's word, but listen, also does what he says. If not, if a person is just coming to church to hear the word but does nothing with it, well, then James says they're deceiving themselves into thinking they're saved when they're probably not. Turn to Luke 6. You all know it. Let me read it to you again. Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus talks about this very thing. And maybe, Luke, uh, maybe James even had this in mind when he wrote these words. But Jesus said to a group of would-be disciples, you know, people that were following him, but were not really saved. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, uh, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the flood waters rise and break against the house, it stands firm because it was well built. But anyone who hears and does not obey is a, like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. And Jesus is basically talking about two people. And for the sake of argument, two people that went to the same church. They both seem to have heard the same word, all right? We'll, talk, we'll just assume it's a good Bible-teaching church, right? In any good, solid Bible-teaching church, there are those who hear God's Word and want to obey. And those who come and hear God's Word but really don't have any... <laughs> they're not serious about applying it into their life. They just feel that because they come to church and hear it, that's somehow good enough. And every church has those people. Jesus said the one, the one whose faith will stand on the day of judgment, the, the storm, are those who hear the word and keep it or obey. They are the ones demonstrating they have true saving faith. 
a person who comes to church, hears the word, but walks out and does nothing with it. Well, they're demonstrating they don't have true saving faith. And on the day of judgment, their so-called faith will crumble and they will be judged. Now, guys, this is going to also apply to Christians. So that deals with phonies in the church. But I believe James is also looking at believers when he says these words. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, James is saying that the person who comes to church to briefly look into the word of God but leaves unchanged is like a person who briefly looks at themselves in a mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what they look like. For both, listen, the information they received did no good in their lives. Guys, most normal people look at themselves in a mirror to make, so, so as to make some changes. A normal person looks in the mirror and says, i got to comb my hair. A normal person looks in the mirror and says, oh, there's dirt in my face, i got to wash my face. But then you always have those narcissists who look at themselves in a mirror and always think they're perfect, you know, the fairest of them all, you know, that kind of thing, right? There are always those people who look at themselves in the mirror and say, oh, you know, remember Happy Days, the Fonz? Remember he went to the bathroom, you know, at school, got his comb all, looked at himself in the mirror and went, oh, man, there's nothing to change. I'm perfect, you know? It's a lot of people like that, right? And this is the case with carnal, immature Christians. They come to church, listen, and look at themselves through the mirror of God's word, but because they have deceived themselves into thinking they are absolutely right with God, they therefore don't see the need to make any changes in their walk or in their relationship with God, although in their minds everybody else needs to, but not them. And they walk away unchanged. That's exactly the opposite of those who are mature believers. They come to church to hear God's word so they can listen, make changes. The changes that accompany holier and more obedient lives for God. Mature believers come to church and they don't really mind if the pastor is direct, if the pastor steps on their toes, because in their minds they really do want to walk in the Spirit and bring glory to God. So, you know, there have been times when I have received a message I believe was from the Lord, and it was pretty, you know, I hope you'll agree that I'm not a harsh teacher. But there are some times when we have to really lay it on the line, right? And, and I have prayed fervently and all the way to church that day, Lord, I just don't want people to feel condemned. I mean, it's one thing to convict. I mean, I know that's what you do. The devil condemns. Lord, I don't want to be an instrument of condemnation. I, if you want to use me to bring conviction, that's great. I, you're God, do whatever you want. But I don't want people to feel like I'm condemning them. Because you love them and want them to change, adjust their lives accordingly, right? And when I've had to give a few of those messages over the years, you know, not really knowing how the congregation was going to receive it, I can't tell you, pretty much everybody was thanking me. And that's a blessing. Because it says that, you know, you guys are people that really want to change and, and be those who honor the Lord with your lives, right? Of those kind of people, mature Christians, James said in verse 25, this is the person who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, 
but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he or what she does. Guys, the perfect law of liberty is simply James' way of referring to the word of God. In so doing, James is really talking about the new covenant, the new creation, where God said in Hebrews 10, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And this, of course, goes back to something else God said in the Old Testament about a coming day when he would make a new covenant with uh, with the house of Israel, but with all people who wanted to receive Christ. Uh, Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Listen, the perfect law of liberty is salvation by grace through faith, which includes, of course, the Holy Spirit coming inside of us. The Holy Spirit then worked within us to make us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ every day as we look into the Word of God with a heart that wants to be all that God wants us to be. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit, right? But this is all, you know, this is the perfect law of liberty. I mean, he's kind of um, almost tongue-in-cheek because this isn't law, it's grace, right? What must I do? That's law. What can I do to please God? Jesus said, this is, the, this is what you can do. What must we do to do the works of God? Here's the work of God, quote unquote. Believe in him who he has sent. The new covenant is all about taking the uh, responsibility of change, if I can put it that way. It's not like we have no responsibility. But the new covenant is all about replacing our self-effort through the law, which could never change us, only surface cleanse us, make us like Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. But the Spirit of God moves in. He writes God's laws in our hearts and then gives us the power. See, we have the will not to obey. We want to do God's will. And then he gives us the power to obey. We are set free from having to exercise self-effort to be what God wants us to be. And we rely totally on the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives within us because we're the new creation of God. Again, William MacDonald said, and I quote, To the serious, mature Christian, the Bible is the perfect law of liberty. Its precepts are not burdensome. They tell him to do exactly what his new nature loves to do. As he obeys, he finds true freedom from human traditions and carnal reasonings. The truth makes him free. This is the man who benefits from the Bible. He does not forget what he has read. Rather, he seeks to live it out in daily practice. His simple childlike obedience brings incalculable blessings to his soul. This one, repeating what James said, will be blessed in what he does. End quote. Well, verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now, the Greek word for religion here is a word that's used in the New Testament and other places, but never in a good way. Never in a good way. This Greek word is never used in a positive light. It's always used of people that are looking to religious works, rituals, ceremonies, etc., uh, to make them righteous in the eyes of God. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 2. Why don't you turn there and we'll bring this to a close. Colossians 2. 
Because Paul slams religion. Colossians 2 verse 20. Paul says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? I mean, if you're saved by grace, what are you living under the law for still? You know, why do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed, listen, have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. End quote. Paul is saying, look, religion can can give the illusion something spiritual is taking place. You're denying your flesh. You're fasting. And, you know, more than a, a, one mystic has, has fasted so much they've killed themselves. This does not glorify God. But this is religion. How I can work for God. What I can do to punish my body. Look, from the standpoint of the world, boy, that looks pretty neat. But you're pretty holy. Paul says that really has no effect on the power of your fallen nature, your flesh. That is going to dominate you if you don't rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to give you victory. And guys, what James also was saying here is the truest test of a righteous heart. And again, we're talking about the new creation. Somebody who's really saved is by what comes out of a person's mouth. Because as Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why James has a lot to say about the tongue. Because he knows that a lot of people call themselves Christians, but because of what is coming out of their mouths, they're demonstrating they really aren't saved. I mean, anyone who uses their tongue to rip others apart and destroy reputations and then goes to church and thinks that their religious affiliation makes them right with God, James says, you know what? You're totally deceiving yourself and your religion is absolutely worthless. I've said it before, let me say it again. God doesn't want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. And that, that's what being a new creation is all about. It's a relationship. Where Jesus Christ moves into your heart through the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit begins to change us from the inside out. And because we now have a new heart, as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The first thing that happens is we get a redeemed tongue. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't fall back into some of the old language. But it should be like fingers on a chalkboard. If it slips out of our mouth, boy, we want to get it right. We are convicted instantly. Because as James would go on to say, you know, a, a good spring can't bring forth good and sweet and bitter water. A good heart can't bring forth praise to God and then all kinds of cuss words. Verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Very simply, James is taking a very practical approach to those who say they have a relationship with God through their religious affiliation or denomination. He says if it doesn't manifest itself, your so-called religion, if it doesn't manifest itself in you helping the helpless, staying away from the defilement of the world because you want to live a holy life or you're walking in holiness, if you know what, you're all about talking the talk but not walking the walk. If you're a Pharisee, one who looks all holy and righteous outwardly, but inside you're full of defilement and, and all kinds of, of wickedness. You know what, James says, you know, your religion so-called is worthless. God doesn't care, you know, how many candles you light, how many rosaries you pray. He doesn't care how many masses you attend. 
He doesn't care that you've been through all the ceremonies and rituals that your church has mandated. None of it matters if your heart is left untouched. And how do we know if our heart has genuinely been converted and if we have a new heart by what comes up out of your heart, what comes up out of your life? What you say and how you think and what you do. So we will pick up now chapter 2 next time as James continues talking about how we know somebody who is genuine and somebody who is not. Those who say, I have faith, but the faith is not real. He talks about that starting in chapter 2. Father, we thank you for our study in your word tonight, Lord. Much practical exhortation. And Lord, the heart of it was that we would grow up walk in the Spirit and be mature. Mature believers, well, they have a unique way of looking at this world. Not to bring them pleasure, but to live in such a way as to glorify our God. Give us grace, Lord, to understand that our growth and maturity is what you're all about. And that's why you bring trials into our lives, to grow us up. So give us grace to embrace them with joy to keep our eyes on things above, not on things on the earth, to cultivate a divine, heavenly perspective. And Lord, we pray that as new creations now, we're the ones that give you voice. We're the ones that tell the world who you are, your name, uh, what kind of a, a God you are. We help people to get up close and personal to see you know, who you really are. We want to do that, Lord, honestly and faithfully. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in the Spirit which means we lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice every day and say, Lord, please, today, kill my flesh that I might walk in the Spirit, take up my cross, follow in your footsteps, that the world might see that I'm different, that I might be a light for your glory. Father, we ask for your grace to live this way. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.